Hello and welcome to Seeing Red, a true crime podcast. I'm Mark. And I'm Bethan. Welcome back, guys. Thank you for joining us once again this week. Before we get started, shall we say a huge thank you to our newest Patreon supporters? I could let you do this if you'd like, Mark. <laughs> okay, yeah, there's, there's an awful <laughs> lot this week. So um, a huge thank you to all of you guys. So we have Paisley Thompson. It's not as easy as it looked, is it? Uh, Patrick Kapolinski, Laura Bryars, Terry, Beth Guinea, Lisa Yates, Jen B, Carla, Bonnie Hutchinson, Brent Eldridge, Mika Kenningham-James, Olivia Byrne, Ellie Freak, James Edmead, Hannah Gustafson, Amanda Pierce and Mandy. Oh my gosh, that's so many. Thank you so much, everybody. If you would like to join these guys, all you need to do is head over to patreon.com slash seeingredpodcast. Today, we'll be discussing the 2012 murder of Tia Sharp, a 12-year-old girl who vanished from her grandmother's home in London, sparking a massive nationwide search, which tragically led to a high-profile murder investigation when Tia's body was found. This is a desperately sad story of deception, manipulation, betrayal, and a shocking crime that sent shockwaves throughout the country. And just before we went, uh, sort of like hit record, we were just talking about this case, weren't we, Bethan? Briefly, because we felt like we've already covered it. The amount of times that we've talked about Tia's murder yeah. and what happened, it's just, it's such a tragic case, isn't it? It really is. And it's one of those stories that I guess once you've heard it once, you just cannot shake. It's one of those cases that for both of us has just stayed with us. And we definitely have, we've definitely discussed this numerous times over the years since we've known each other. And it is odd because it feel, we feel like we have covered this and we know we haven't, but we've referenced Tia numerous times. We've talked about this case on the show a few times and we've had so many different listeners ask us to cover this case as well. She, she really did hit hard her case didn't it to to the whole of the British public yeah I think it was like a lot of cases before it and since it just it was one of those cases that just grabbed the imagination and the attention of the the entire public and everybody was talking about it because of course Tia went missing initially and it was very much a desperate hunt to find her and then as the days went by we feared the worst and that was then confirmed and it was that really hot summer of 2012, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. So I think we remember the the heat and the sunshine and we remember this on, on the news. So, yeah, it's vivid, I think, in a lot of our minds. And I think that's why it's been requested so much, because it's not just us. A lot of our listeners feel the same, for sure. And it's an absolute roller coaster as well. If anybody's listening and they yeah. haven't heard of this case before, you're re- this episode is going to just shock you. It's just it is just crazy and heartbreaking and yeah let's just crack on and actually tell the story rather than telling everyone how much this story is yeah is going to affect them tia christine sharp was born to parents stephen and natalie on the 30th of june in 2000 in croydon in south london within weeks of her birth tia's parents amicably split up but remained on good terms with stephen having regular access to his daughter However, as time went on, the relationship between Stephen and Natalie deteriorated, and this resulted in Stephen seeing Tia less and less often, eventually leaving Natalie to raise Tia all by herself. To remedy this, Tia's grandmother, Christine Sharp, became heavily involved in Tia's upbringing, and it's understood that the two of them grew to become incredibly close. In fact, Tia was equally as close to Christine as she was her mother Natalie, who later commented that the three of them were friends as well as family and formed a strong family unit who looked out for one another. The family were incredibly close-knit and rarely went anywhere without each other. As Tia grew, she developed into a happy, bubbly and cheerful young girl. Her teachers described her as feisty, owing to her unshakable confidence that was considered unique for a girl of her age. She was fearless in the face of adversity and was never afraid to stand up for herself or to voice an opinion. Tia was also highly intelligent and showed promising academic flair. There was little doubt that she had a bright future ahead of her. However, fate intervened cruelly in 2007 when a new male figure arrived in Tia's life. Tia's grandmother Christine had been working part-time in a local pub and it was here that she met and began a relationship with a man who was 10 years her junior. The man's name was Stuart Hazel. He was 32 years old. It turned out that Hazel was in fact no stranger to Tia. 
He and her mother Natalie had had a very briefling some years earlier. The relationship hadn't lasted, but Hazel and Natalie had managed to part on good terms. Natalie truly believed that Hazel was, overall, a decent man, and so she made no objections when he began a relationship with Tia's grandmother Christine, so that's Natalie's mum. It's a, it's a weird one, isn't it, because it was a long time prior and it was very, very brief, so you kind of think, well, how many like brief encounters do people have with random people? You shouldn't let it stop somebody, but it still makes me feel very weird, the idea of like... Somebody I had like a very, even if it was just like a brief one-time thing with somebody and then my mum getting with them, it just kind of bothers me a bit. Yeah, it's, it is really weird. Um, yeah, because I, I, I'm trying not to be judgmental with it, but I don't really care. I am going to be judgmental. I think it's really weird. I'm quite happy to say that. And they, they were a bit of a weird family in, in lots of ways, Natalie and Christine and their relationship. So it's kind of not surprising that this happened and that Natalie was okay with it and that Christine thought it was okay to uh, start a relationship with her daughter's former boyfriend. I don't know I just I get it because like they're saying they're friends as well as mother and daughter and all of that so maybe it's not so weird for them but and I'm not being judgy but I just feel a bit a bit weird about it. I I think also it's because we know what went on to happen and that obviously puts a massive um, cloud over all of this. It does. From the outset, Christine's relationship with Stuart Hazel appeared to be a happy one, to be fair. She fell deeply in love with him, and within a matter of weeks, he'd moved into her new Addington home. Hazel also rekindled a friendship with Natalie, and he grew to become very fond of Tia. So he was obviously a step-granddad to her. And Tia enjoyed his company, and she soon began to affectionately refer to him as granddad. Not long after Stuart Hazel became involved with the Sharp family, Tia's attendance at school became a cause for concern. She would regularly fail to show up for her classes, often without any apparent reason. There were also concerns that her mum Natalie and her new boyfriend were smoking cannabis in the home around Tia, and that Tia's home life was becoming more and more chaotic and dysfunctional. Social services became involved in the ongoing monitoring of Tia's welfare, And whilst they were unable to find any clear evidence of abuse or neglect, it was decided that Tia's teacher should keep a watchful eye on her and flag up any further concerns moving forward. As time went on, Tia's attendance did improve and she was able to get herself back on track with her education. Don't forget, she was a really bright girl. Two years then passed without any incident and social services closed their file on Tia in 2011. Fair play to her because there's a lot of kids who would not be able to get past that and that's no sort of shame on them whatsoever but it's that is a really hard thing to kind of come back from and for her to be able to just kind of go actually yeah I'm gonna get back to going to school and I'm gonna get back to working hard that's really admirable. And to be fair to Tia's mum Natalie it might be that Natalie kind of got a shit together and that dysfunctional chaotic home became a more loving nurturing home for Tia. Mm. Maybe it was a bit of a kick up the arse that she needed. By 2012, five years after Hazel had entered Tia and her family's lives, he and Christine were still together. Tia would regularly go and stay overnight with them. Whenever Christine had to work late, Tia would stay in the house alone with her step-grandfather. It was clear that Tia loved her grandparents dearly and they loved her in return. Time at the house often involved doing fun things like having movie nights or gaming sessions on the PlayStation. Tia was just as happy being with her grandparents as she was her school friends, and by all accounts everyone was happy and there was never any reason to be concerned. However, everything changed in tragically dramatic fashion in August 2012, when Tia messaged her grandmother Christine and asked if she could come and stay with her and Stuart for a few days. Christine was scheduled to work night shifts that week, but Stuart was happy to look after Tia. Her mum Natalie agreed that it was okay for Tia to go and stay with her grandparents, and Tia seemed extremely happy to go, and excitedly caught a tram to New Addington on Thursday the 2nd of August. And this is so, you know, this is not out of the ordinary. I remember going for summer holidays with my grandparents. It's not, this just doesn't feel like anything's unexpected or unusual does it it doesn't at all it's a summer holidays I used to go my grandparents lived in Ireland I used to go out for weeks at a time and and stay with them so this is completely normal and it's a change of scene for Mm -hmm. Tia 
And yet to some holidays, so she was probably just bored and thought, I'll go there and I know I'll get spoiled. Mm. Tia was met by Hazel when she got off the tram at around 4.50 that afternoon. CCTV footage shows the pair heading into town and visiting a few shops together. They were observed laughing and joking as they jovially wandered the town, before heading back to Christine's house together just after 6pm. By all accounts, nothing appeared to be out of the ordinary. The following afternoon, on Friday the 3rd of August, Christine returned home from her night shift to find Hazel at home all alone. She was surprised that Tia wasn't there and she asked Hazel where she'd gone. Hazel replied that Tia had left the house at around noon to go shopping for shoes in Croydon and would be home later. Christine waited all day for Tia to come home, but there was no sign of her, and by 6pm she was beginning to worry. Christine called her daughter Natalie, who confirmed that she had not heard anything from Tia since the previous day. And this was worrying, it was extremely unlike Tia to go anywhere or do anything without letting either Natalie or Christine know first, even more so for her to stay away for hours on end without so much as a phone call or text. And then all subsequent attempts to reach Tia on her phone and on her social media went unanswered. With a growing feeling of concern, Natalie, Christine and Hazel got in the car and drove around New Addington and then Croydon to see if they could find Tia. By 10 o'clock that night, darkness was falling and there had still been no sign of her. A sense of dread began to envelop Tia's family members now. Something was clearly very wrong. The decision was now made to report Tia to police as a missing child. And do you know what? Sometimes I'm really um, scathing of social media and how much we're all connected all the time. But actually, for her to not answer the phone and not answer social media proves very quickly that something was wrong whereas before when there was no other way of contacting somebody people would be missing for longer and and potentially children might be missing for longer because there was less I don't know like less obvious signs that something was wrong and it is one of possibly one of the good things about having so much connectivity nowadays. Yeah it's um it's yeah you're right it's like when people used to go traveling for example they might only be able to kind of touch base with home when they stumbled across an internet cafe somewhere so they would go weeks and weeks without dropping a line to their mum or their other friends or whatever Mm. Um, whereas it's totally different now we've got everything on our phones so yeah I completely agree and I also think it's interesting that they didn't report to you missing until 10 o'clock that night but I do understand this because I think it's almost admitting defeat, isn't it? It's kind of, this is serious now. And you want to almost put off having to get the police involved because that that really puts a story into the next chapter. And that's a worrying chapter to, yeah, to go and I into. Yeah, gu- I guess if she's quite streetwise and a sensible kid, you would be thinking, she doesn't normally do this. Let's go, yeah, let's go have a look for her. You might then think to yourself, oh gosh, I wish we had rung the police sooner. But at that moment, you you'd probably just be thinking, well, she's obviously just got distracted. You'd also, I guess, like between the three of them, be trying to calm each other down rather than none of you wants to be the one who's like, let's call the police straight away, I I guess. And maybe us guys as true crime kind of listeners and um, readers, we might be more likely to. But I, I imagine within the three of them, they're kind of like, she'll be back soon, she'll be back soon. And they're, they're driving around and searching around and probably phoning people that Tia knows. So time's just running away with them, I would have thought. It's only when night starts to fall and it gets late and, and the darkness is descending that they probably realised how late it was and mm. thought, right, yeah. we've got to do something now. Because this is August, it was would have been very light and it was hot. The police were immediately concerned for Tia's welfare and her description was handed to dozens of patrolling police officers who kept their eyes peeled for her throughout the night. However, by sunrise the following morning, there was still no sign of Tia. An urgent missing child investigation was now launched. They were initially working with the theory that Tia may be a runaway case, but there was also a risk, of course, that she'd been abducted. Either way, a massive search operation was launched to find Tia, which involved more than 100 police officers, and that is so serious then, isn't it? Yeah, that is really major. That's going to make you just think, oh shit, this isn't going to end well, and that's why I can understand the reluctance, that initial reluctance to get the police involved, and to kind of admit that this is really serious. It's so tricky though, isn't it? Because do you remember that episode where the little girl went missing in Primark and the two I girls were taking her? I was thinking her? about that. They, yeah. 
you know, mobilised police so quickly and so fast that they were able to have a happy ending to that. So it's, it is really tricky, isn't it? Because you don't want to be overreacting and being ridiculous. And you, even though actually the police would never say this, you don't want them to think you've wasted their time because she comes strolling in and they never would. But I know that parents would worry about that. But equally, if you do get something, you know, reported quickly, there's the potential that these hundred officers could be mobilised quicker. So yeah, it's a really hard one, isn't it? It is. And did you know that that whole you can't report a person to the police as a missing person until they've not been around for 24 hours? Did you know that's like complete bullshit? Yeah, it's just like a thing from films and from TV like books or something. Stuff, yeah, isn't it? it's, it's bull- yeah, it's, it's absolutely nonsense. It's, I don't think it's ever been a thing. It's just, yeah, it's kind of gotten out there as this folklore. But it's not true. The police will instigate a missing person's investigation immediately if it warrants it, if there's vulnerability there, if it's a child, for example. And that's it. If you go to the police with your concerns and they feel that it's not so much of a concern, they will behave differently. We've looked at cases before and we've talked numerous times about how as an adult you're allowed to go missing. And if somebody goes missing but their cards are still being used and they make the conscious decision not to come back that's on them that is absolutely their right and that decision and the police can put out appeals but they're not going to do much more however a 12 year old 100% they're going to take that seriously straight away of course it didn't take long for the media to get hold of this story and before long news of Tia's disappearance was being reported on news and social media channels throughout the UK As is often the case when a child goes missing from the UK, ordinary citizens banded together in huge numbers, they got themselves organised and began a detailed search of the area. Multiple hundreds of volunteers from London and beyond got involved, and Tia's distraught mum and grandmother waited anxiously at home for any updates, but Stuart Hazel joined in with the search efforts and even gave interviews to the media, claiming to be desperately concerned about Tia's disappearance and urging everyone to keep searching and not to give up. Behind the scenes, the investigation and subsequent effort by the police to locate Tia and bring her home safely took a very linear approach – Hazel had told them that he had last seen Tia at around midday on the 3rd of August when she'd left to go shopping. Christine's next-door neighbour, Paul Meehan, had also told police that he'd seen Tia leaving the house at around that same time, and this was the last verified sighting of Tia, and so the police went to Christine's new Addington home and began the search from there, hoping to find some indication as to where Tia went after leaving the house, and of course they had sniffer dogs and all sorts to try and follow her trail. Christine's house was briefly searched for clues and it was here that the first chilling discovery was made. Officers soon realised that Tia hadn't bothered to take her mobile phone or any money with her when she left the house. For someone who was planning to spend the day out shoe shopping, of course this struck them as highly unusual. And also for somebody who her family say she would never not be in touch with us. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean she was going shopping so why would she have not taken money with her? The next step for the police was to go door-to-door and interview Christine's neighbours, as well as others who lived on the estate to see if they had heard anything unusual. Other than the initial sighting of Tia leaving the house on August 3rd, nobody had seen anything of significance. Detectives also obtained more than 800 hours of CCTV data from local businesses and trams on the day that Tia had vanished and all the gathered footage was deeply analysed several times over by officers hoping to catch a glimpse of Tia's movements after she was last seen. But despite the efforts of dozens of trained CCTV analysts, no sign of Tia was found. And this, of course, was another significant development because it suggested strongly that Tia had never gotten on the bus to begin with. And that is when you're really going to start to worry because they have really analysed everything and it doesn't actually now look like Tia has left that house. Croydon Town Centre was five miles away, making it highly unlikely that Tia would have made the journey on foot. And even if she had, there was once again zero CCTV sightings of Tia along every conceivable walking route that she may have taken. It was almost as if Tia had vanished into thin air shortly after leaving the house that day. Christine's house was searched on a further two separate occasions over the following three days, with each search employing different strategies to seek out potential clues, including, as I said earlier, the use of sniffer dogs. Detectives believe that Tia must have left a clue or a trail behind her, 
They just needed to find it. Meanwhile, the fierce media attention surrounding the case was adding tremendous pressure to the police to locate Tia and bring her home. On August 7th, four days after she'd gone missing, lead investigators held a press conference. They spoke with the media and issued recent pictures of Tia, urging anyone with information pertaining to her whereabouts to come forward immediately. Tia's distraught family members were also in attendance, and her mum Natalie told journalists, We all feel terrible. We think she's been taken, but we just don't know. There is no CCTV. We know absolutely nothing. I wish to God I could tell you something. My baby girl walked out and vanished. And it's so sad. I remember seeing kind of the news reports and all of this at the time, and it's it's just heartbreaking. You can see her mum is just beside herself. And I also remember feeling a little bit guilty at the time because Shannon Matthews' case hadn't been very long before. I feel like that was only no. maybe three or four years before, maybe three years. I don't really remember, but... I remember having like a a bit of doubt, like, well, what if the mum's involved sort of thing? Like, and feeling really, really guilty as well. Like, oh God, but Shannon's case was so, so unusual and unexpected. And I don't know, just, yeah, I remember really feeling for her mum and just seeing all these things where they're just constantly asking for the public for just, have you got any information? It was just horrible. Yeah, their their faces became well known to the whole country and I always think about I always think about the relatives of a missing person because they're thrust into the limelight. They don't want to have that infamy, but there's no they have no choice but to feature in a press conference to really appeal for information about their loved ones' whereabouts. And it's a bit like with Nicola Bully recently. Lots of her family found themselves on the front pages of newspapers and on TV news bulletins all the time and they become well known then and that's really difficult to cope with and you're not prepared for that either because it happens overnight so but I think like you I think I had some initial doubts around this uh, because purely because of the Shannon Matthews case Mm. and here was this going to be a southern version of of what we saw there a council estate a a dysfunctional family setup and a young girl has gone missing uh, but but it wasn't absolutely wasn't no. the case uh, with this. So on on that note, the police did actually attempt to quell any potentially harmful speculation about what happened to Tia, and they stated to the press conference that the case of Tia Sharp was at that time a missing person inquiry, and that no evidence of foul play had been uncovered. Because again, it's in the initial stages of social media and this was being talked about. And I think they were, you know, very much, this is a missing person's case, a genuine missing person's case. And we need everybody to be on guard uh, for anything that could lead to her whereabouts. However, the police did have some doubts themselves at this time. They absolutely did suspect foul play almost from the outset of their investigation, beginning with the discovery of Tia's phone and the money at Christine's house. And as the last person to see Tia alive, it was only logical that the larger share of suspicion was firmly focused on Stuart Hazel. It later transpired that the police had been suspicious of Hazel since day one of their investigation, and they were not the only ones. The media had begun to drop hints and promote speculation about Hazel's role in Tia's disappearance. So much so that on August 9th, he proactively reached out to ITV News and gave a live televised interview from his living room with a news reporter to, as he put it, clear his name. Do you remember that? I remember this. this was a massive thing, wasn't it? Bizarre. I just remember thinking it was so weird. It's no, really weird to have. Why would you do it? And and to, to, I mean, I get maybe having an interview at home, but this was a live interview on the six o'clock or six thirty news with ITV going out nationally live, and there was so much suspicion on Hazel at this point ac- across the whole of the UK, and the way that the news reporter presents his questions towards Hazel it was you know you could see the suspicion there absolutely and it was it was just so weird to see somebody sort of squirming a little bit and claiming that they were innocent even though no one had publicly cast any aspersions on them but it was all Mm -hmm. this sort of bubbling beneath the surface and also like I don't you know correct me if I'm wrong but I don't seem to remember that there was very much about Tia I feel like my my memory of this is that it was all about him and it wasn't really about Tia. It was about 
I'm I've not done anything wrong whereas if you hadn't you'd be more kind of like look can we all stop focusing on the wrong side of this my granddaughter has gone missing and I need you to help find her. and do you know it just came across weird yeah so I'm, I'm going to go on to just quote a little bit of that interview that went out live as I said and it very much is focused on him uh, addressing those uh, concerns of that growing speculation that he was somehow involved in Tia's disappearance. So he said, uh, this was in answer to the, the growing speculation that he was involved. Well, they can believe whatever they read in the papers and they can do whatever they like because I know deep down in my heart that Tia walked out of my house. She walked out of there and I know damn well because she was seen walking down the pathway. And that's a reference to Paul Meehan's sighting of her. I know she made it down that track that way. What happened to her after that, I don't know. And that was kind of how it was left. So yeah, very much trying to say I have nothing to do with this. And it isn't clear what exactly Hazel was hoping to gain from giving this interview, but it did very little to quell the growing suspicion that was now mounting up against him. And I don't know whether he was paid for this. I think there were rumours at the time and since that he did receive payment for that interview because it would have been a massive exclusive. Although Hazel had not been made an official suspect in any kind of criminal offence, it was obvious to everyone that he was being investigated at this point. He was repeatedly being called into the police station for questioning and his movements and behaviour in the run-up to Tia's disappearance were heavily scrutinised. So there were camera crews outside Christine and Stuart Hazel's house like the whole time. Uh, He couldn't really go anywhere without being watched. So when the police turned up and brought him in for questioning, that would be all over the news because they they witnessed it. It was their live being reported, him getting in in a police car, not handcuffed. But, you know, it's clear that he was, uh, you know, definitely a suspect now. The day after that ITV news interview on August 10th, one week exactly after Tia had gone missing, Hazel woke up uncharacteristically early. He got dressed and left the house in a hurry. Christine woke up not long after he'd left and as soon as she got out of bed, she noticed an unpleasant odour that seemed to be much stronger upstairs than it was on the ground floor. Later that day, a team of investigators arrived to conduct their fourth search of the property since the investigation had begun. And when Christine mentioned the strong smell upstairs, the police told her to leave the house immediately and to not return until they gave her permission to. And later that afternoon, of course, everyone's worst fears were tragically realised. The body of 12-year-old Tia Sharp was found in the attic, wrapped in a black bedsheet and stuffed into an industrial black bin liner. She was wearing pyjamas. In a separate bag next to her were the clothes she'd been wearing that day, along with her glasses, which were badly broken. The heavily decomposed state of Tia's body meant that she could only be identified through her dental records, and a post-mortem was unable to determine the exact cause of death. And I just want to kind of pause a moment here, because I mentioned it a moment ago or a while ago, but it was this was a hot summer. This was August 2012. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The Olympics were happening or had happened prior to that kind of, you know, a few weeks earlier. It was a glorious summer and it was hot and Tia's body had been in wrapped in sheets in a big industrial black plastic bag and shoved into the loft. And of course, the heat rises and it's insulated and the state of decomposition would have been probably equivalent to somebody decomposing over a period of weeks and weeks and weeks, if not months. Yeah, rather than just that so, week, it's quite, yeah. Yeah, and and that's why the smell was there. And, it, you know, it was just such an undignified end to, to her, wasn't it? You know, she, she's been murdered, yeah. and of course, that's just brutal and horrific. But the way that her body had been disposed of and how it had just rotted in that home, in a home that she should have felt safe in, it had been rotting there all the while. Christine, Natalie in the house, Stuart in the house, detectives in the house, sniffer dogs in the house. Uh, it's just, yeah, it's just absolutely Stuff tragic. of nightmares, yeah. I remember that. It's that, like you said, that feeling of that's her home, like not her home, but that was a one of her homes. It was her grandparents' home that she felt comfortable and wanted to stay at. And I, I remember just thinking like, it's just like the last, the last thing you would want and expect to for her to be found. And and weirdly, I remember at the time, even though this is eleven years ago now, 
I, I kind of remember not being that shocked when this was announced mm. in the media that her body had been Sadly, found in yeah. the loft of that house. Yeah, I, I was just like, yeah, okay, I get it, I get it. It was theorised by the lead pathologist that Tia may have been suffocated, but that could never be verified because of the state of decomposition, which again is a huge injustice because her family would have wanted to know how her life came to an end. That, that mm-hmm. can really help with an element of closure around it. The discovery of Tia's corpse immediately upgraded the missing person inquiry into a murder investigation. And when the police realised that Stuart Hazel had gone on on the run, basically, because he'd left that morning, Mm. they put out an immediate arrest warrant for him. And they also issued an appeal to the public to help to locate him, urging members of the public, of course, not to approach him, but to call 999 as a matter of urgency if they spotted him. And it was believed, this is really interesting because I, I kind of get this, it was believed that Stuart Hazel had been woken up by the smell of Tia's rotting corpse emanating from the attic and he then knew full well that he wasn't going to be able to get away with this for much longer. Christine was going to wake up, she was going to smell that odour and she was going to start asking questions. And I think Stuart Hazel would have gone to bed the previous night, obviously panicking, worried, and may have even started to smell that odour that night and then managed to sleep somehow and then wakes up and it's overpowering and he just mm. thinks, oh, fuck, I'm fucked. Yeah. And yeah, he knows that's it now. He's got to get out of there. And also just very um, quickly at this point, I think I don't sort of come onto it in the script, but I, um, the reason that Stuart Hazel, because there's no spoilers really, we know that he was responsible for Tia's murder. The reason that Stuart Hazel had disposed of her body within the home was because there were camera crews outside, there were police in and out the house constantly. There was no way that he could have disposed of her body once this had all kicked off because he might have had the intention of, well, I'll I'll put her body in the attic for now and then dispose of it somewhere else at a later date because Mm, this is a hot summer. And then he just couldn't and he wasn't prepared for the momentum that this story would gather and, and the Uh, camera crews and all of that outside the house yeah and he clearly thought that saying that she'd left the house would take kind of the attention away from the house but then the police were really focused on the house and especially once they found Tia's phone and money they weren't gonna not search you know search the property in different ways so 100% he definitely just must have had such a panic yeah and it's I mean it's one of those because I've had these awful dreams in the past where I've been disposing of a body and I kind of think, oh, they're normal dreams. Everybody has that. It's like an anxiety dream or something. Probably not. It's probably because we do a true crime podcast and we talk about this kind mm. of stuff. But I've had those dreams before where I've, it's not even clear that I've murdered someone, but I'm, I've got a body that I need to get rid of. And the panic I feel, and it's only a dream, a nightmare, but in the reality of it, so I'm not saying I feel for Stuart Hazel, but I can really empathise with the panic that would have set yeah. in for him. The absolute I definitely panic. definitely had that, that from a dream as well. Good. I'm glad I'm not the only one. No. Yeah. I, I, I can never manage to find a solution. I wake up so and realise it's okay. I've not murdered someone. I don't need to get rid of a body. Um, but yeah, there would have been absolute panic for him. So it didn't take the police long to track down Hazel. CCTV picked him up when he bought a bottle of vodka from a news agent in Cannon Hill, an area of London which was 10 miles from Christine's home, the home that he shared with Christine. And the same evening, the police received a tip-off from a member of the public who had spotted him and was now discreetly following him as he wandered aimlessly around the Cannon Hill common area. And after racing to the scene, they successfully captured and arrested Stuart Hazel on suspicion of the murder of Tia Sharp. And that was at 25 past eight in the evening. So, yeah, he was just kind of drinking this vodka, getting drunk, thinking, oh, my God, what am I going to do? And Mm. he's only actually managed to make it 10 miles away from home. Fair play to that member of the public as well to just like stay on his trail. Really brave. And then, yeah, there was um, there was a case recently where there was a drunk driver local to me. And members of the public actually apprehended this person and got them out of the car while they waited for the police. How crazy is that? Wow. But equally, that person could have taken someone's life or several people's lives, you know? Yeah, it's like you you kind of have to intervene and stop that. Yeah, it's something I just can't abide, drink driving. Um, Well done to them and well done to Mm. this person, yeah, for, for tracking him. So by the time Stuart Hazel was arrested, news had broken about the discovery of Tia's body. 
As Hazel was loaded into the police car, the enraged public hurled abuse at him, and police later announced that two further arrests had been made. That of Tia's grandmother, Christine Bicknell. She'd been detained on suspicion of murder due to some minor inconsistencies in her alibi. And then Christine's next-door neighbour, Paul Meehan, who I mentioned earlier, he'd also been arrested on suspicion of assisting an offender. And this was because his original statement to the police, uh, basically in that statement he said that he saw Tia leaving the property at about 12 o'clock, and that obviously was felt to be inaccurate at best and at worst downright false. Um, So he'd been telling porkies to the police, it was just not clear why at Mm. this point. So both Christine and her neighbour Paul were subjected to intense police questioning in which they both strenuously denied any wrongdoing. Both were eventually granted bail pending the murder inquiry. The police and media response to the discovery of Tia was brutal and furious. The media reported on rampant police incompetence and demanded answers on why it had taken the police so long to find Tia's body, when in theory the attic should have been searched on day one. I mean... Let's talk about this, because it was on the fourth search of Christine and Stuart's home, the home where Tia had basically last been seen alive, a fourth search before they found her body in the attic, and that was only because the smell was so putrid at this point. I think it is absolutely ridiculous that it wasn't even just given... I get it, like, I I don't know about you, but my attic you have to get a step ladder out it's not got it's not like one of those fancy ones where you have nice good steps or anything so to get up there you wouldn't be able to like encourage a dog to go into the room it's not like a bedroom or something so I get that that would be hard but surely you would give it at least a look around because even if you're in the back of your mind you're thinking this is actually a murder case it still could be a missing persons case where someone's hiding so why would you not search everywhere that this 12 year old could potentially have hidden but it's it's a part of the house that's obvious surely unless it's a hidden attic which it doesn't sound like it is if he can get to it quickly and she knows there's an attic and why yeah why was it not looked into i just do not understand that i think an initial cursory search was completed not where somebody actually went up into the attic but someone kind of poked their head up and shone a torch around and without being sort of too graphic with this Tia's body had been sort of packed into the rafters of yeah. the roof and so I guess it's like not a as bin, cut and dried as bin this, liner but... as well like a lot of yeah. us have stuff in our attics that are in bin liners or plastic bags yeah. of some description so I, I kind of get it, but I, I really don't at the same time. I think I, I would get on maybe the first search of it, but then maybe the second, it needs to just be a bit, like you said, really, we're not necessarily looking for a body, but is she hiding? Is she hiding in this house? And we need to find her if she is, because kids will do that kind of thing. So um, so yeah, it's I don't know enough about it to pour scorn totally on the police, but common sense to me says that it just wasn't thorough. The police did dig deep into Hazel's criminal history and the enraged public were left wondering why on earth a high-risk individual like Hazel was ever entrusted to be alone with Tia in the first place. So let's do a bit of background on him. He was born on December 31st in 1965 in London and he grew up in New Addington. He had a deeply troubled childhood and was known to have a difficult relationship with both his father, who was a drug addict, and also his mother, who was a sex worker. As a child, he was removed from his parents' care and placed into foster care. There are unverified claims that he suffered extreme sexual abuse at the hands of his carers. Stuart Hazel left school at the age of 16 with no qualifications and became involved in petty crime, including theft and burglary. And he also had problems with alcohol and drug addiction throughout his life. And if you see pictures of him from 2012, around the time this happened, he's 32 years old and he looks, he could pass for somebody who's in their late 50s. He's clearly oh God, had a I, I very difficult life. I genuinely always yeah. thought he was, because it was always in the in the media about granddad and grandmother's yeah. partner and stuff, I'd always assumed that they were both a lot older, but especially Hazel. I'd always yeah. thought he was in his 60s. And then I remember when I found out how young he was, I actually think it was potentially you that told me years later when mm. we were talking about this case, because I'd just not realised. And I was like, no chance was he 32. 
and yeah. we looked at pictures and we were like god that that life of like crime and and a very hard life really did just take its toll on him because he, he yeah. d- genuinely looks like a, an actual granddad yeah absolutely as an adult hazel had a series of jobs including working as a roofer and a chef so he would have known about you know how a roof is kind of made if that makes sense mm, true. in terms of how it's sort of put together so that's interesting he had several short-term relationships and was described by those who knew him as a bit of a loner someone who struggled to maintain a stable relationship hazel's criminal history began in his early 20s when he was convicted of theft and sentenced to a community service order he continued to have run-ins with the law throughout his life with convictions for offences such as criminal damage, possession of drugs, possession of weapons and racially motivated assault. So just a horrible guy. And by the time he entered Tia's life, he'd amassed more than 30 convictions and had been in prison three times. And his offending behaviour continued long after he got together with Christine. However, she stood by him, opting not to judge him on past mistakes and he was allowed to remain in a position of trust within that family. And I know it didn't come in until a couple of years, I think two or three years later after this, but um, things like Claire's Law now give people more opportunity to check in on potential partners. But actually, Christine was well aware of of his past, but um, we'll go on to sort of more about what happened with Tia, I suppose. But none of his crimes in the past would have kind of given her any inclination of what was to come. So I, it makes me really sad because... Even if she hadn't have known and then she'd managed to do a Claire's Law disclosure request and found out about his past, she probably still would have made that same decision because it's very separate, isn't it? You've got somebody who's, you know, criminal damage and racially motivated assaults and that sort of thing. It's very different to look after your 12-year-old granddaughter and you, you still potentially wouldn't necessarily think that there was any issue and so, yeah, it just always made me feel really sad with her that she she had that chance to protect her, but didn't realise that she needed to. And I kind of understand why she wouldn't have realised, yeah. I, I don't blame Christine. No. I, I really don't. You're, you're right about things like Claire's Law, but you've got to look at this in the context of, you know, this is a rough family, this is a rough estate, and this is normal for them to have relationship with people who've been in and out of prison and you're right I, I don't think Christine would have probably maintained a relationship with him if she realized that he was essentially a paedophile because then he's a danger to her beloved granddaughter Tia but none of his history showed her that yeah no of course not so she's aware of his previous convictions and some of that's happening during their relationship but yeah she's kind of looking at that and thinking yeah that's not good but that's kind of normal for us and he's not a threat to me or the family he's just somebody who is a racist and somebody who has been a drug addict in the past and has had to steal and has been done for possession as a result of that and he was probably someone who was actually with the stability of this relationship with Christine, who was a bit older, a grandmother, a you know, family was important to her, uh, a settled kind of home, which Tia, you know, found comfort in. It was perhaps more settled than Tia's own home. Maybe he was a bit more settled and, and less problematic and had kind of gotten over that mm. troubled past as far yeah. as she was concerned. Who well, knows? Yeah, because I'm not going to say that racially motivated assaults are ever justifiable no way however if this person is behaving you know criminal damage possession of weapons racially motivated assaults and it's all part of the drug issues or the drink issues if that person's now clean they may well not be a racist anymore who's Mm. going to assault somebody and you may think not necessarily oh it's fine that they're a race but actually they're not going to do that anymore because they're clean now so you're right yeah he she probably felt like she was helping him and giving him the stability. Mm. And I, I used to work with somebody, this was a long time ago, um, and obviously I won't kind of name names or where I worked or anything, but it was a long, long time ago. Never actually worked with her, but kind of knew her. She worked for the same company. And her husband was um, grade A paedophile, and she didn't have a clue. She never knew. Um so he was hiding that from her. So mm. in the same way that, that you know, we have uh, this relationship here, Christine's not going to know 
that that her partner is is a paedophile, which he absolutely was, as we'll come on to dis- discuss in a little bit of detail in a moment. Police Commander Neil Basu, the officer in charge of the investigation, did apologise to Tia's mother Natalie for the week-long delay in finding her daughter's body, and he blamed human error and said that an urgent review would be undertaken to ensure such a failing is not repeated. Great for anyone else whose daughter happens to die, not so great for her. Following her death, tributes were paid to Tia by her family, friends and members of the public too. Flowers, teddy bears and other items were left outside her grandmother's home where she was last seen alive. And obviously that was the home of, you know, that was her deposition site. A candlelit vigil was also held in Tia's memory with hundreds of people gathering in New Addington where Tia lived and many people left messages of condolence and support for Tia's family. There were also numerous fundraisers and charity events held in Tia's memory with the aim of raising money for causes close to her heart, such as animal welfare and, of course, child safety. Shortly after Stuart Hazel's arrest, the police once again descended on Christine's house and this time they conducted a deep and rigorous search. They wanted to redeem themselves for the embarrassment of taking so long to discover poor Tia's dead body. They needed to gather solid evidence and bring Tia's killer to justice. There was so much pressure on them at this point. Hazel was, of course, their prime suspect. They charged him and there was a fair amount of circumstantial evidence, but they needed something more concrete in order to ensure that those charges stuck and that he was found guilty. So they they spent two days round the clock, 24-7, relentlessly searching his and Christine's home and their hard work paid off. Several memory cards were recovered from the house. One was particularly well hidden in a door frame on the ground floor of the property. Police were able to recover images and videos, some of which had recently been recently deleted. And what they discovered both shocked and repulsed them. It turned out that unbeknownst to Tia, her step-grandfather, Stuart Hazel, a man she loved and thought she could trust, had had an extremely unhealthy sexual interest in her. He was obsessed with Tia. He would later admit to police that he was in love with her and he was totally convinced that she was in love with him too and not in a kind of step-grandfather, granddaughter Mm. kind of way. As Tia hit adolescence and began to gradually develop from a little girl into a young woman, Hazel's perverted obsession and sinister thoughts regarding Tia only intensified until it got to the point where his impulses were becoming almost uncontrollable. Some of the images that had been taken were voyeuristic in nature and included pictures of Tia fast asleep and covert videos of her getting changed or applying moisturiser on her legs, apparently oblivious to the fact that she was being filmed, were also found. It's just so disgusting, isn't it? It is honestly utterly disgusting and this discovery was shocking enough in its own right but actually worse was to come. As the police dug deeper into the memory cards, they discovered several deleted images that portrayed Tia's dead body in a sexually suggestive position, in several sexually suggestive positions. Oh, I'm it's so just sorry for sort heartbreaking, of, isn't it? It's it, it is. And this has all been reported in the media. And I know it's so hard to hear, but this is a true crime podcast and we have to. Mm-hmm. There is a line, of course, there's a line, but we, we have to talk about it i feel we really do to show the depravity of stuart hazel um so he had posed her post-mortem and then he had bizarrely posed in images naked in similar positions to how he had posed tia and then he had photographed that um and of course you know he wanted to keep these uh images for sexual gratification down the line so that he could revisit this and i think he deleted these in a kind of desperate bid to you know in case they got found basically and Mm. and proved that he had murdered her hazel's laptop and phone were seized and it came as no surprise to the police whatsoever when they discovered that he had visited an alarming number of child pornography sites and paedophile chat forums on the dark web and criminal psychologists later assessed hazel and theorized that perhaps he had finally given in to his urges perhaps he'd made a sexual advance towards tia maybe he had just attacked her Well, he attacked her either way, but maybe it wasn't an advance. Maybe he just kind of went in and attacked her. Um, Hazel could have then, perhaps once she rebuffed his advances, maybe he became enraged at her her rejection and then was scared that she was going to expose him. So that's why he then killed her, which you do see quite often. So yeah, maybe it was that he was 
you know, mad that she'd rejected him because he was in love with her and he thought that she was in love with him too. And he took out that rage on her. I think probably it was more that he needed to silence her because she would have talked about this. And there are, there are other really disturbing facets to this case. And I just, I won't go into the detail of them. Um, but I, we've spoken about them before, Bethan. Yeah, there's so much more to this case that we we just yeah, like you said, there's there's a line. Isn't there is there, a line. The true crime there podcast, is a line. and um, yeah, I think the fact that he was even looking at sites that show child sexual abuse is like that's what they're designed for. He was, um, yeah, I I personally think that he genuinely had some creeped out way of thinking that she actually was in love with him too and he basically tried um, to make a move and she was of course absolutely horrifically repulsed by that because you would be and then yeah I I think that that was it I think he just snapped and and either was so enraged by the fact that he'd been turned down in his mind turned down i mean it's it just doesn't even it's not even the right words to use but in his mind that's how it would have felt or actually he snapped because he was cross and then suddenly thought god i need to shut her up because yeah she's gonna say to somebody i've had to look on the dark web for this stuff he mustn't have known it was so so wrong he was hiding all this stuff like around the house and stuff Sorry, my I've got a cough, so my throat's really awful. But he would have known that this was all so wrong. So yeah, I just can't quite work out which way it went. But it's just horrendous, no. isn't it? I, I also think he was just so fucked up from this really fucked up childhood where there was most likely severe sexual abuse that was perpetrated by so-called loved ones and carers. I think the the kind of um, familial relationships and sexual relationships in, in his head perhaps just became so intertwined that he mm. misread lots of normal, innocent signals from Tia of hugs and sitting on his lap or whatever, you know. Yeah. He misread all of that. But I'm absolutely not making any excuses for him. But I can just kind of see the context that, yeah, it would have been so fucked up in his head. Um, But yeah, you know, we have an absolute grade A paedophile here. Mm -hmm. Under intense questioning, Hazel denied all involvement in Tia's death. However, his resolve began to crumble when he learned that the police had found his memory cards. And he repeatedly contradicted himself and changed his story as he tried and failed again and again to explain these images away. How can you explain these images away? Utterly ridiculous. And this is a thick guy, you know, so he doesn't really have the imagination to come up with a, a better excuse for them. Not that there would be, I suppose. In a pitiful and desperate attempt to downplay what he had done, he finally broke down and told police that on the 3rd of August, Tia had taken a fall down the stairs at the house. So this is the best he can come up with. He had gone to her aid, but he said that she appeared uninjured, so he didn't think too much about it. Later that day, he said that he and Tia had played on the PlayStation. He said that he had consumed excessive amounts of vodka until he'd eventually passed out on the sofa. And he said that when he then came round later that night, he discovered Tia dead on the living room floor. And in a drunken panic, he'd changed Tia into her pyjamas, wrapped up a body and hidden her in the attic. And when asked why he didn't just simply call an ambulance like any sane person would, he couldn't offer any explanation. So he's kind of saying, you know, that that day was pretty normal, but she'd fallen down the stairs. It was a bad fall. She seemed okay. Obviously, she wasn't and she later died. Um, And then I suppose he was he would perhaps happily admit to posing her post-mortem because that's not saying he killed her. That's still something that he would be Mm. charged for and sentenced for. But it would be minimal so um a bit like what's his face he said um oh i just found her body and then had sex with her dead body um yeah in the recent case of um sally ann bowman wasn't it sally ann bowman i can't remember yeah. his name but i'll remember sally ann's name i can't remember his name but it's like that um just absolute bullshit because I, if memory serves and the law might have changed since sally ann bowman's murder um I seem to recall that there was a maximum sentence of two years for what he claimed to have done, which was bullshit anyway. So he said he'd found Sally yeah. Bowman's body in the street and then had sex with her. And there was a maximum sentence of two years wow. for that. Of course, he'd murdered her and then, you know, engaged in necrophilia. But yeah, just 
shocking that there's there was only a two-year sentence for that. Mm. In the early hours of the 12th of August in 2012, Stuart Hazel was charged with the murder of Tia Sharp. He was, of course, denied bail and remanded in custody. Christine Bicknell was released without charge, and her next-door neighbour, Paul Meehan, later admitted that his earlier claim that he'd seen Tia walking down the driveway on the day she'd vanished was in fact a lie. And get this, he said he'd made it up to make himself feel important to the case. Honestly, I'd forgotten what his fucking stupid thing was. And when when we were talking earlier, I was like, I can't remember why he made this up. I cannot remember. And I knew it wasn't that he was like in cahoots or anything like that, but I could not remember. I thought he was from memory. Yeah, I thought he was in cahoots. Yeah, that was it. He just just wanted to have something important. And it's like, fuck off. Go volunteer at a homeless shelter if you want to feel important. Like, don't, don't just make up a lie about an investigation into a missing child. And it, it was such an important yeah. detail that he'd volunteered to the police because... That was the last sighting. Oh, yeah, and it validated what Stuart Hazel had said. Mm-hmm. And as a result, they delayed looking into Hazel and focus their efforts elsewhere. And yeah, Meehan was later charged with wasting police time. That was kind of the only charge I think they could throw at him. And he was given five months in prison, which was mm. absolutely right, because it did derail that the early days of the investigation. Yeah. The trial began at the Old Bailey in London in May 2013. So we would have been working together by this time, Beth, and not when Tia was murdered, but we would have in May 2013. And I think when this... That's probably what got us talking. It would have, because it would have been all over the papers and we would have discussed it at length. That was, you know, 10 years ago. That's madness. Mm. And I know, as we said earlier, we've, we've talked about it an awful lot since and it's very much stayed with both of us. So at at his trial, Hazel initially pleaded not guilty to the charge of murder. During the trial, the court heard how he had sexually assaulted and then murdered Tia before hiding her body in the loft of his home. The prosecution also presented evidence of Hazel's internet searches for child pornography and violent sexual material in the days leading up to Tia's disappearance, with search terms including violent forced rape and little girls with glasses. And of course, Tia wore glasses. That was, you know, a real trademark of hers. And that's how we remember her in, in the photos that were released to the media. Doesn't it really, does it annoy you as well that like the police would use terms like child pornography? Or is that just me? It just really bothers me that they use that phrase because it shouldn't, it should just be like sexual abuse images. Like, I, I don't know, yeah. like it always really yeah. annoys me when the police use a phrase like that. And we talked recently about how um, call a spade a spade, like rape is rape. But back in the day, there were different phrases for different things. And it would be like yeah. unlawful sexual intercourse or something along those lines. And you just think like, it almost is making it less of what it actually is, making it trying to like not make it as bad as it is. And it should be, it should be disgusting to hear because it's horrific. I, mm. I think that's it, isn't it? I think they're trying to sanitize it by calling it pornography, a term we're all familiar with in the normal sense of it. Um, whereas if, if they call it, like you said, child images or video of child sexual abuse carries so much more weight so yeah it feels like it's minimizing it to Mm. me and we picked up on it before I hadn't even noticed this time which is shocking because that just shows how often that term is used in the media Um, but Mm. yeah incredibly sad the prosecution argued that Hazel had a sexual interest in Tia and had killed her to prevent her from reporting his behavior which I think is what it was I don't think he just flipped out and you know carried out this um, murder because he was so enraged that she'd rejected him. I think it was uh, his way of silencing her mm-hmm. and preventing her from reporting what he had attempted to do. Yeah. And they then took Hazel's defence claims that Tia had died accidentally while he was passed out drunk and they ripped them apart, directly accusing Hazel of being a paedophile and a murderer, which he absolutely mm-hmm. was both of those things. In the prosecution's closing remarks, they stated that Hazel was a monster who had betrayed the trust of Tia's family and had taken advantage of her vulnerability. They argued that he had shown no remorse for his actions and had even gone so far as to help search for Tia's body, whilst knowing all along where it was. And this, I'm going to come on to a sort of quote at the end, actually, which kind of talks about that from the family's perspective of how it felt for them knowing afterwards that Tia's body was there all along. The jury were shown the appalling images that Hazel had taken of Tia post-mortem. And this caused Tia's mother, Natalie, to run out of the courtroom in floods of tears. Oh my God, I can't get over that. They were shown 
the image like yeah. even to have the images described is horrendous enough like for those jurors not just you know natalie of course but for those jurors as well i i mean i've sat on a jury briefly and we were issued with a pack and it was all the kind of exhibits that were going to be referred to during the trial. And it was a case of historic child sexual abuse. And there were lots of text message exchanges in, uh, in, in this kind of pack. And I sort of, you know, they don't stop you doing this. I kind of flicked through the pack, flicked forward and looked at them. And even just some, some of the, the content of that was, was so disturbing and has absolutely stayed with me. But to have seen, for the, for, you know, the jury to have seen these images, which they had to see, because it's a court of law and it has mm-hmm. to be proven that he's taken them. Um, yeah, I just, I can't, I really hope that they have been supported after the fact. And yeah, for Natalie to, to have seen that and potentially Christine as well, it's just going to live with you forever. It's just going to cause so much damage psychologically. Hazel's defence team argued that he had not intended to kill Tia and that he'd panicked after accidentally causing her death. They also claimed that Hazel had been abused as a child himself and had struggled with mental health issues throughout his life. That's as maybe, but, you know, that's nothing to do with what you went on to do because lots of people are sexually abused, sadly, and and have horrific mental health issues as a result of that or for other reasons mm. and don't Oh, yeah, do this. exactly, exactly. And a lot of people have drug and alcohol dependency issues yeah. and don't go on to do this. A lot, yeah. Mm. I think it was always in him. He was always going to do something like this. And this, it presented itself and he took advantage. But had had, had this not happened, had Christine broken up with him and thrown him out of the house, you know, in 2011, a year before this happened, this would have happened at some point. It was always in him. He couldn't control mm. those urges. Nope. Before the jury were dismissed to deliberate, the judge told them that they must consider all the evidence carefully and make their decision based solely on the facts presented to them during the trial, because of course it had been all over the news. And the judge emphasised the seriousness of the charge against Hazel and the importance of justice for Tia and her family. Not long after, Stuart Hazel suddenly changed his plea to guilty, and it's believed that he knew he stood zero chance of getting away with his crimes, and so pleading guilty, he thought, would give him a more lenient sentence. And it didn't really work out that way. Uh, He was sentenced on the 14th of May in 2013 at the Old Bailey in London, and he showed no emotion when he was given a life sentence with a minimum term of 38 years. And he'll be 75 years old before he's eligible for parole. He he will die behind bars because he's led such a physically abusive life to himself that his health will decline and he'll die. Uh, he won't, you mm. know, make 75, no way. And the judge said that the only reason he didn't impose a whole life tariff on Hazel was due to the tiniest elements of doubt that the murder was sexually motivated. I, I don't know how he's come to that conclusion, but there must have been a tiny element of doubt in the evidence that was presented because not all the evidence can be presented at a trial in his closing remarks the judge stated she tia was a sparky girl who was full of life but you took that life from her all that lay ahead of her a career loves and family of her own will now never be and the loss of her has been devastating for her mother her father and all of her relatives and friends the tragedy of their loss and her death is because of your act in murdering tia sharp you are responsible after the trial tia's father stephen spoke to the press and passionately expressed his belief that hazel should serve his full time in jail and then be executed by hanging Hazel is currently serving his sentence in HMP Wakefield in West Yorkshire and in the years since his conviction the media has reported that he's written a number of letters to various family members in which he still stands by his original story that Tia died by accident and that he is not, as he puts it, a nonce. Mm. It's just like you said earlier as well when we talked about the pathologist not being able to determine her cause of death. It's just another lie that's an insult to the family and and not giving them the chance to fully know the information and grieve. They don't know what her last moments were like. They don't know how long this happened for. They don't know to what extent she was sexually assaulted. You know, do you know what I mean? Because her body had decomposed so much. So they don't know what what her last hours were like. And had they been able to to know that, they might have at least had some solace in the fact that maybe this was quick. Mm. But they don't know that. 
The investigation into Tia's death was, of course, widely criticised for a number of failures, including delays in searching the property where Tia's body was found and failures to properly assess Hazel's risk to children. I'm not so sure about that, um, because there wasn't really much in his past that indicated there could be a risk there. No, it doesn't. I think that his other crimes were separate, yeah. The case led to a robust review of child protection procedures in the UK, and Tia's grandmother Christine finally spoke to the media in 2013 and spoke of her devastation for Tia's horrible death and her hatred towards the man that she had once loved, the, the man that she had invited into Tia's life. She said, and this is quite long, but I really wanted to, to cover it all off. I loved Tia with all my heart, but I let my baby down and I will never be able to get over that. I spent five nights in that house being cuddled and comforted by the man I loved, praying for Tia to come home safely. Her mum Natalie even came round and stayed with us because we were holding each other together. But all that time Tia's body was above our heads, all alone wrapped in bin bags, and Stuart had killed her. But I didn't know. Why the hell didn't I know she was there? I'm her grandmother. I should have protected her, but I failed her. All her life, I told her she could rely on me, that I'd look after her. I'd warned her about all the evil people out there, the paedophiles and sickos, and had the stranger danger chats. But all the time, the danger was in my own home, and I had absolutely no idea. People asked why I hadn't picked up on any of the clues. Surely I must have suspected something. He was my partner, we shared a bed, we shared everything for five and a half years. But I swear there were no clues that I was living with a monster. And if people want to make comparisons, then they should look at Stuart as another Ian Huntley. I feel nothing but pure hatred for Stuart Hazel. And that's where I wanted to end it, really, because that just shows the the huge impact this had on all the facets of this case, the huge impacts it had on, on Tia's loved ones that were left behind, of feeling hoodwinked by somebody that they had invited into their family, and knowing the whole time that after the event that Tia's body was there above them, as Christine says. It's just, just a, a heartbreaking case. It makes me want, like, obviously, I it's, I don't know, I don't know the right way to describe it, but it makes me want to just, like, jump in there into that statement and just give her a hug, but also kind of say to her, like, no, like, you should not have known. You c- did not fail no. her. You could not have protected her any more than you did. Like, there is literally nothing that, sh- that her family could have done any differently. No, I completely wholeheartedly agree. I'm glad you finished on a statement from them and it's all talking about her as well, like Tia. Yeah, and she was, as as the judge said, she was a sparky girl and she really was. She was fiercely independent and motivated and opinionated and confident and, you know, got what she wanted out of the short life that she had. And it's just appalling that it had to end so brutally at the age of 12 she could have gone on to achieve great things she was so intelligent and so sparky you know the judge was right so yeah just so sad for what could have been for her Mm. and um we'll, we'll leave it there so thank you for listening and we will see you next week for another case see you then